what's up folks? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. I have a very special announcement to make before we get to today's show. Earlier this month in June 2021, my wife Chris and I welcomed our first baby into the world. This podcast is coming out on Father's Day, June 20th, 2021. So happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. We've been completely smitten with the little man and are stoked to join Club Parent. It was wild being on the other side of healthcare as a patient and partner. As you may know, both my wife and I are CRNAs and we both work as obstetric anesthesia providers at the Level 1 Trauma Center where Kristen gave birth. We're used to placing epidurals and spinals for labor and delivery and enjoy the fast-paced environment of helping support laboring patients. But a couple of weeks ago, we got to slow down and step over to the other side as we welcomed our baby into the world. We can't express how grateful and fortunate we are to have a healthy baby and mama, and we will definitely move forward in our practices with a much deeper understanding of what laboring patients and their partners go through. I also want to give a huge shout out to all the L&D nurses, obstetricians, and anesthesia staff and support staff out there who rock out day after day, night after night, supporting laboring patients and their partners. All y'all are amazing no matter where you are, and we're so grateful to the team who took care of us locally. So I want to talk to you today about deliberate practice and how harnessing this tool will help you master your craft and become an expert anesthesia provider. But first, I want to tell you a story. So when I got out of anesthesia school, the first six months were a huge learning curve. Being out on your own after completing your training in many ways still feels like you're in residency. There's so much to learn and relearn. The hospital I joined had a team of CRNAs who did thoracic surgical cases. It was a closed team, meaning only a certain number of the CRNAs from the whole staff did these specific cases in order to build closer relationships with the surgical staff and increase proficiency with bronchoscopy, one lung ventilation, and other aspects of the case. Early on, I had the opportunity to join this team, but I quickly realized that I was not nearly as proficient in managing the fiber optic bronchoscope as I would have liked. I had done a handful of lung cases during training and also had maybe a day or two in the university sim lab to use the fiber optic scopes, either practicing positioning double lumen tubes or working through the steps for awake fiber optic intubation. But on the whole, my skills were really at a novice level and I desperately wanted to improve. The only catch was I no longer had a sim lab available to me and I was only sporadically doing thoracic cases, maybe once or twice a month. Given the fact that the CRNAs on the thoracic team also rotated everywhere else at this hospital. So what I decided to do was use the bronchoscope on other cases. At the time when CRNAs did thoracic cases, the thoracic OR nurse would set up a bronchoscopy tower with the high-end bronchoscope and a full-size monitor and everything would be set for us. If the CRNAs wanted to use a bronchoscope on other cases, we often defaulted to using one of our difficult airway carts that were equipped with reusable bronchoscopes. The scopes had a bit of a complicated setup. You had to remove a special tag used in processing the scopes for sterilization, fix the light source, make sure the battery worked, attach the appropriate size suction port, apply silicone lube to the scope, defog the camera, attach the scope to a small iPad size video monitor, and plug the whole thing into power so the video monitor battery wouldn't die. For someone who rarely uses scopes, this setup can be intimidating. The institution has since switched to disposable bronchoscopes that are much easier to set up. My goal in practicing with the scopes more frequently was twofold. Get better at managing double lumen tubes and bronchoscopy for lung cases 
and get more proficient at managing fiber optic scopes so that I would be more prepared when patients needed awake fiber optic intubation. These are two very different skill sets, but proficiency with the fiber optic bronchoscope is a common theme with both clinical situations. Anyway, the cases I chose to set these scopes up on and use them with were our maxillofacial trauma cases, Lafort 1 and 2 fractures. These cases often ran as add-on cases at the end of the day into the evening. I had time to set up the scope and get a plan together. These patients were already slated to get nasally intubated, and adding the fibroptic scope didn't change the overall airway management plan too much. These cases were also non-emergent on patients who usually were appropriately NPO and without any underlying lung disease, all variables which might give me more time to actually manage the scope during the process of airway management with less overall stress. I often had to sell the idea of doing fiber optic nasal intubation to the physician anesthesiologist I worked with, but I rarely met much resistance when I presented the plan with a clear explanation and a rationale. By deliberately pursuing other cases, cases that didn't require double lumen endotracheal tubes and weren't emergent awake fiber optic intubations, I significantly increased the frequency with which I got to practice with this equipment on real patients. I also sought feedback from providers who were more experienced than I was. I watched the thoracic surgeons and pulmonologists manage bronchoscopy. They have their hands on these scopes several times a week. I sought feedback from the thoracic surgeons on scope management hand placement, how to turn my wrist or drop my forearm to get different views, which also greatly improved my skills. As my skills grew, so did my confidence, both of which aided my ability to use the scopes more proficiently during thoracic cases and emergent airway cases. So this story is about the idea of deliberate practice, which is a specific approach to practicing that will help you develop mastery and expertise in the skills that you're pursuing. It would be a boring podcast if all I was here to tell you was that in order to improve, you just need to practice more. Most people get that. But what you may not have heard about is the power of deliberate practice and what that specifically means. Anders Ericsson was a cognitive psychologist who is regarded as one of the world's top researchers on human performance and expertise. He's the expert on expertise. Through studying countless top performers in music, chess, athletics, medicine, and other domains, Erickson found that what separated true masters from people who were really good at something, but not the absolute best, was the amount of time they put in doing what he dubbed deliberate practice. Now, Malcolm Gladwell popularized Erickson's research in his book, Outliers, and coined the idea of the 10,000-hour rule simplifying some of Erickson's work that found that on average, it took experts about 10,000 hours of dedicated practice to achieve mastery. The extremely important distinction between Erickson's actual research and what most people took away from Gladwell's book is that it's not just 10,000 hours of doing something that results in expertise. It's 10,000 hours, give or take, of deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is not the same thing as basic experience. It's not the same thing as being on the job for 10,000 hours. The true magic in the process, which is not really magic at all, is the kind of practice top performers do. Erickson says that deliberate practice requires the following things. You need to develop an accurate mental representation of the skills that you seek to attain. You need to identify a specific plan for improvement. You need to reflect on the progress you've made along the way, and you need to concentrate with each new practice opportunity on how to continue to develop, focusing on actually what you want to work on. 
Feedback from a coach or mentor or preceptor is critical to the process. And of course, the whole process takes substantial time. So let's break these down a little bit. You need an accurate mental representation of where you want to end up. You need to get a picture in your head of what proficiency looks like. You need to know what you know and know what you don't know. What that gap is between where you're at and where you want to head. This includes the global picture of what an anesthesia provider should be in terms of their skills, knowledge, and attitude, as well as each of the individual skills like fiber optic bronchoscope proficiency, direct laryngoscopy, placing arterial and central lines, epidurals, regional anesthesia blocks, and communication and decision-making. Erickson also recommends that we develop specific plans for improvement. We all start somewhere. We all struggle with skills initially, and it takes time to layer on knowledge and leak concepts in greater and greater complexity in the OR. But instead of adopting an I'll just try again tomorrow approach, Erickson recommends we develop a specific plan for improvement. Think about day-to-day which areas your practice needs improvement and outline the specific steps for how you will get better in those areas. This has helped, obviously, through reflecting on the progress you've made thus far, what things you've learned, and then concentrating with each new opportunity you get to practice something on the skills that you want to improve. This whole process has helped immensely, and Erickson would even say is critically dependent upon the feedback from a coach, mentor, or preceptor who is an expert at what you're trying to do and also who has proficiency in teaching those skills. So often in anesthesia training, learners just try to get through the day and not piss off their preceptors. Or we're annoyed by preceptors who are too picky and just want us to do things their way. But the power of precepting is something critical to the process of clinical education, and it's likely underappreciated by both preceptors and learners. As a learner, early on, you often need to just trust your preceptors to show you the way. As you progress, you need to take more and more ownership of your education. It's not to say go at it completely alone. But in the learner-preceptor relationship, sometimes you, as the learner, need to seek out specific feedback and coaching from your preceptors. You need to take ownership of the relationship. Ask them to actually watch you do something. Get their specific feedback on how you're doing particular skills. Then ask to watch them do a skill that maybe you've been practicing for weeks or months. If you think you're pretty proficient at getting a patient from pre-op through induction and intubation, ask to watch your preceptor do their routine without having to teach or coach you along the way. Just observe how they work through the flow at their own speed, and I guarantee that you're going to pick up on things and learn about efficiency and flow by watching an expert work through the sequence like induction or placing an epidural. The topic of feedback, coaching, and precepting in clinical education is fascinating to me and is not talked about nearly enough in primary anesthesia training programs or continuing education. We've talked about it before on the podcast, and it's definitely something that I'll keep coming back to you over time. Both preceptors and anesthesia learners need to maximize this relationship in order for anesthesia trainees to develop proficiency, expertise, and true mastery. Another aspect of deliberate practice that Erickson outlines is that it takes substantial time to develop true expertise. Anesthesia training is around three years long because it takes about three years to truly gain competence in the skills and knowledge set. And that's after years of development in nursing school and critical care experience or med school in your internship year. 
So don't get frustrated if you've not mastered everything six months or a year into clinical. You're still on the path. You're still on the journey. Eric's has found that many top performers required around 10,000 hours to develop true mastery of a craft. Gladwell coined this as the 10,000 hour rule, but there's nothing magical, again, about putting 10,000 hours in on something. It takes this deliberate, concentrated practice with feedback from a coach or mentor over a substantial amount of time to develop true expertise. One of my favorite quotes from Erickson is that most professionals reach a stable average level of performance within a relatively short time frame and maintain this mediocre status for the rest of their careers. That is a bit of a gauntlet for everyone out there who is you know, settled into your career and practicing. You've got to keep training. You've got to keep getting better. He goes on, quote, we know that superior performance does not automatically develop from extensive experience, general education, and domain-related knowledge. Some experts will at some point in their career give up their commitment to seeking excellence and thus terminate regular engagement and deliberate practice to further improve performance, which results in premature automation of their performance. Y'all know who he's talking about. You work with these people. They do the same thing every day. They've been doing the same kind of anesthesia for 20 years that they learned in residency 20 years ago, and they've not advanced their practice at all. He goes on, quote, in direct contrast, aspiring experts continue to improve their performance as a function of more experience because it is coupled with deliberate practice. The key challenge for aspiring expert performers is to avoid the arrested development associated with automaticity. These individuals purposefully counteract tendencies toward automaticity by actively setting new goals and higher performance standards, which require them to increase speed, accuracy, and control over their actions, end quote. For me, this means don't stop when you pass boards. Boards is an amazing finish line in the completion of a long path in your education to become an anesthesia provider. It denotes a basic competence in a wide range of knowledge, but in many ways, it's just the beginning. It's another starting point. It's a green light for your practice. You're hopefully competent as a general anesthesia provider at that point, and maybe even proficient in a number of skills, but likely not an expert. You need to keep practicing and keep putting the time in to expand your knowledge base, experience level, and skill set. For a quick look at an anesthesia study that backs this idea up, go check out episode seven of Anesthesia Guidebook titled Leadership in Emergencies. There, I cover an article that looks at performance ratings of physician anesthesiologists in managing simulated perioperative crises. The scores are lower than you would hope or expect. And the authors conclude that basic training, the training that leads to becoming a board-certified physician anesthesiologist, may not adequately prepare providers to handle a wide array of emergencies. So let's look at one example of how we can apply deliberate practice before we close this thing out. I've recently been working with SRNAs who are learning to place lumbar epidurals on laboring patients. The mental representation often starts with learning the basic sequence of steps in placing an epidural, along with all the didactic knowledge of indications, contraindications, relevant anatomy and physiology of pain receptors, and the pharmacology of local anesthetics. They often show up with this book knowledge and even a fair bit of practice in the sim lab working with epidural kits but they're painfully slow at doing the actual procedures. So first, we start by making sure the technical sequence is correct and the procedure can be done safely and in a sterile fashion. 
after the first few epidurals go in successfully, the SRNAs are usually pretty stoked and feel their confidence growing, but they're still really slow and usually haven't had to troubleshoot any difficult placements yet. So the mental representation needs to evolve from the basic book knowledge and sequence of placing a catheter to actually doing the procedure and putting the knowledge into practice to how do I improve efficiency, speed, accuracy, confidence, and skills to then how do I manage even the difficult epidurals and troubleshoot suboptimal catheters. The resident needs to reflect on what they already know and identify where they need to improve. Sometimes, again, watching an experienced clinician do the skill opens your eyes up all over again to how fluid they are, the experienced provider, and the little nuances of ways to improve your own technique. With this new and more precise mental representation of what to work on, the resident can focus on those specific micro skills the next time they do the procedure. For instance, how can you improve the efficiency of getting saline into your loss of resistance syringe? Trying to pull it up through the filter in the kit into a slip tip loss of resistance syringe often results in you pulling up half saline, half air. But pulling the saline up through the filter into a lure lock syringe, then squirting it out into the tray, and then pulling it up with your slip tip loss of resistance syringe without the filter on it, even though this is an additional step, it may actually dramatically improve your speed and efficiency. If you're a preceptor, your anesthesia learners may not be aware of the ways they can improve their efficiency. They may not know what they don't know. You, as the preceptor or coach, can have a huge impact by finding ways to give them constructive feedback. As a learner, your approach to any skill set can be substantially augmented by the feedback from an experienced mentor or preceptor. Ask your preceptors to watch you. Listen to their feedback. Watch preceptors perform skills. Ask them questions about how and why they do what they do. The power of feedback from a mentor on improving your skills is even relevant to practicing clinicians. Atul Gawande outlined this in his book, Better, A Surgeon's Notes on Performance, in which he discusses how we can improve our individual practices and healthcare in general. Gawande found that his tennis game substantially improved after years of playing tennis when he hired a coach. He was an experienced endocrine surgeon at the time, and he thought perhaps his performance as a surgeon could similarly improve with professional coaching. He hired a former mentor of his to come and watch him do surgeries and give constructive feedback. His mentor ended up pointing out several aspects of Gwandi's surgical approach that he could improve upon that Gwandi himself was not aware of. Having the humility to realize you might not have it all figured out and to ask another professional to give you feedback on your performance can be a key to avoiding mid-career mediocrity and continuing to push towards true expertise. Another approach to this is to simply go watch your colleagues do a skill that you also perform. Go watch a colleague place an epidural, insert a central line, do an induction sequence and intubation, pre-op a patient, or read a TEE. While you may have attained proficiency at any of these skills, you will likely be able to pick up on nuances and variations that you find valuable for your own practice. So that's the skinny rundown on deliberate practice. You can read more on this by researching deliberate practice in professional databases. It's been widely researched and published on. There's links in the show notes to this episode to a few key journal articles by Erickson, as well as the popular book he published on deliberate practice, along with co-author Robert Poole, titled Peak, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Remember that whatever you pursue, whatever craft you want to master, 
Your path and journey can be greatly enhanced by utilizing deliberate practice to continuously iron out weaknesses, explore your own ignorances, and improve your strengths. If you want to hear a bit more on this, you can also go back and listen to episode 31 of Anesthesia Guidebook, where I talk through this and other topics related to expertise in anesthesia with Denim Ward. There's also a link in the show notes to a podcast with Erickson himself as he unpacks the themes related to deliberate practice and answers some common questions. So I hope this helps. And as always, shoot me an email, Instagram, or Facebook message with your comments and questions. And with that, I'll see you next time. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.